Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for yet another beautiful day at camp meeting. Thank you that we can be here together. Thank you that you can enlist us in your army. Help us to be good stewards, good servants. Help us to do work well. That when you come again, you can say, well done, good and faithful servant. So Lord, we expect and we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit in this room at this time to teach us once again, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we started the beginning of the week, um, we talked about how this was going to be primarily a theology course. It's going to be a Bible study on the doctrine of personal ministries. By the way, let me do this. The, the brother had a good idea. Maybe the people re- listening might like this, but they can't see it like you can. So I'm going to do an odd thing right now. I'm just going to read this out loud. For anyone who's listening to this later on, if you'd like the notes for all the sessions of this series, you can go to https colon forward slash forward slash bit dot ly forward slash 2m9y5tn. That should work. Do the capitals, all right, in case the capitals are an issue, we'll do it again. (laughs) Everything's lowercase unless I say uppercase. Can we at least do that? Okay. (laughs) HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash BIT dot LY forward slash two capital M nine lowercase Y five lowercase T capital N. Okay, let's go with something simpler with the Bible. Now, now as we talked about, this is a doctrine, right? I wanted to demonstrate, and I hope that we have done so convincingly, that this idea of personal ministries is not some new initiative by the church or some idea that was conjured up by a committee. By the way, you've heard the joke, what is a camel? A horse built by committee. Um, And... uh, Sometimes we have these committee things that sound good on paper and you roll them out and they don't really work, but consistently God's word from the beginning to end shows this method of soul winning. Come, come on in. I'm sure we, there's a chair over there for you. There's always one available somewhere. All right. So now I want to take building on that platform a Bible and spirit of prophecy foundation. What I'd like to do now is move into our message entitled Mining the Manual. Now, I'm guessing you don't have a church manual. Does anybody here have a current copy of the church manual with them? Excellent. Excellent. You can get it online, however, and I'm not going to go through that website thing again. But you can get it if you just Google SDA church manual. You can get a PDF download of the current Seventh-day Adventist church manual. Now, I'm not trying to take away from the ABC sales. You can always buy one, hard copy or softback, you know, uh, paperback. But uh, it is available online. I keep it in my phone. I have my little Adventist section of uh, apps for what that's worth. It's SDA. It's got my hymnal, my church manual, the Sabbath app, which tells me my hours of sunset and sunrise. You know, it's got 3ABN and some TV, which is Secrets Unsealed Ministries and, you know, the Sabbath School Quarterly audio verse, all these kind of things. So in this techie day and age, there's, there's no excuse for not having the resources you need. Okay. And the church manual is one such resource. Now, when we talk about the church manual, 
The reason I bring this up is because this is something that is voted by the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. It's applicable in all divisions, in all unions and conferences, because some people say, well, I live in a conference that doesn't do this, or I have a local church, and you wouldn't know what they do there. But we have rules of governance, agreed upon policies and practices, that are published for the whole world to see, and you are not going outside you're not like, oh, you're an extremist. You're crazy if you come and do these things. Well, wait a minute. No, 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 no. I'm just following the manual. So I want to give a tool in your hand that already exists, that's free of charge, that has authority in your local church. Now, let me do a few minutes on the, the background, the history of the church manual. Sister Gladys, here's a chair for you. There you go. Because um, I know that in different circles, there's different opinions about and perspectives on and uh, there's different thoughts about the church manual. In some place it is, it, is, it is seen as right up there with the Bible and spirit of prophecy. It is inspired. And I know no one's actually going to say that, but it's treated that way. Okay? In other places, it is, you know, just some denominational thing over there. We do our own thing. You know, we're off from that. Let me give you a little history and recommend a balanced approach to using the church manual, okay? Uh, in 1878 was the first time, I, we mentioned yesterday, in 1863 was when this church was officially organized, and there wasn't a church manual. They didn't have a, a policy book of any kind. It was just, I mean, it was really in beta. The whole denomination was just a big test at that point. But um, discussions regarding the formation of a Seventh-day Adventist church manual began in earnest in 1878. At the 1882 General Conference session, it was recommended that a subcommittee be commissioned to write, quote, a manual of instructions for church officers. A three-man committee prepared documents that were intended to be reviewed at the upcoming General Conference session. And you would think, oh, they have to wait five years, but you remember General Conference sessions were, at that point, every single year. Then they went to two years, then they spaced it out, and now we have a quinquennial session, which is five years. And now even conferences are oftentimes going to broader times before. The, so we here in Michigan have a quinquennial session. Does anyone know when our next one is? September 30, this year. We happen to be living in the year of quinquennium. <laughs> Super exciting. Anyway, but it's important. And so anyway, at 1882... They recommended the subcommittee to prepare documents that would be voted upon at the following general conference session or to be discussed, right? These documents were published in a series of 13 articles in the Review and Herald during the next summer ahead of the 1883 session. So they wrote them up, then they published them ahead of time so everybody could take a look and have their thoughts and get feedback and whatnot in preparation for some sort of decision at the next GC session. So in 1883... At that next session of 1883, a committee of 13 appointed to review the proposed manual voted unanimously against it. Now think about this. The year before, they had discussed it. They had a three-person subcommittee go write up all the things that should be included and start preparing and publish them in the Review and Herald to get everybody on the same page. They came to the general conference session, appointed another subcommittee to review it, and all 13 said no. General Conference President George Butler was commissioned to write an article in the review explaining the committee's thinking. The GC president took pen to paper and said, here's why we, the review articles you've been reading last year that we were all anticipating, 
Here's why we're not going to go with that. Okay. Elder Butler's article, tersely titled, No Church Manual, <laughs> commended the author's work in preparing the proposed manual, even stating that it contained, quote, much excellent matter and gave many valuable directions. So I want you to get this straight. Nothing that they had written up was controversial or heretical. There was some deeper issue. The concern wasn't that particular manual, but the notion of having any manual whatsoever. Elder Butler felt so confident in the church's position against the notion of having a manual that his concluding line of his article was, quote, it is probable it will never be brought forward again. He explained that the GC committee's reasons for rejecting the manual were, quote, of a broader character. Namely, the following, and this is, not, this is my summary of his insight here, but the use of a manual might lead away some, especially of the younger ministers, from seeking guidance directly from Scripture and the leading of the Holy Spirit. So you have new people in the work, and that might just kind of default to the rule, but you know how they have math books and they show the answers in the back, you know? It's not that the answers are wrong, but we want to make sure that you know how to get there without the answer key, right? So they were concerned about that. Second concern, over time, a manual would be regarded not merely as a guidebook, but as a rule book. This perception would tend to make man shallower in his thinking and less original and less self-reliant. A third consideration was that since Seventh-day Adventists have no creed but the Bible, a manual could be understood, or I should say misunderstood, as the first step away from that simple position and toward a creed like other denominations. Even, by the way, our fundamental beliefs, the very opening page of it has a preface. This is not a creed. This is just our agreed understanding of what the Bible teaches and we're open to new light or clarity on these points. This is why in 2010 we could add a, another belief. We went from the 27 fundamental beliefs to the 28. How can you change the number of fundamental beliefs? Well, well, there needed to be clarity on certain things. There were issues copping up that we needed to have a theology statement about so we could have a common understanding, right? No problem. We're not creedal. We're biblical. And here was the practical consideration. Remember, this is 1883. That's now 20 years since the General Conference was established, and the church was growing like gangbusters. <laughs> We've organized the denomination well by God's grace this far without a manual. Why start now? So they looked at what was a good resource, but said we have some deeper concerns about having any resource in this direction, so let's just not do it. That was the thinking. Now, there's nothing wrong with what they proposed, nor was there anything wrong with their objections to it. That was just the vote of the church at that time. The subcommittee didn't even bring it to the floor. They just said, no, let's not do it. And so you would think, when he said it is probable it will never be brought forward again, that would be the end of it. But in 1932, the first official Seventh-day Adventist church manual was adopted by the General Conference in session. Some people point and say, and that is where we went off the road. That is when the apostasy was, you know, systemic. Please don't be those people. The great controversy is conspiracy enough. Right? 
there is an actual real conspiracy from Satan himself. Let's not add to it by conjecturing that every, every rock and thing has a Jesuit under it. Now, I'm not, in the book, The Great Contribute talks about the Jesuit. I'm not, you understand what I'm saying. But don't look at the church manuals like this. I forgot to bring my copy of it. I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, this, this evil work that has been contrived and put in. and Because so, it was after Ellen White died. If she were alive, she... Notice that she wasn't a part of this process either. It was just the church's thinking. They said, hey, it's okay. So, here's my recommended approach to the church manual. Again, some people say it's come from the GC, so therefore we cannot change a word of it. Other people say it is apostasy to have it at all. We must get rid of it. There are a variety of views regarding the existence and authority of the Seventh-day Adventist church manual. This presentation is not intended to be an an excursus on every concern that could be addressed. By the way, for a more comprehensive study of the development of the SCA Church Manual, I would encourage you to read chapter 13, entitled A People of the Book, in Dave Fiedler's fantastic little work, Insight, Seventh-day Adventist History in Essays and Extracts. If you've never read that little book, Hindsight, by Dave Fiedler, you should do it. By the way, it's been in print for a long time. And you can even find them in bargain bins and stuff like that. You can probably find a copy at the Cedar Reader or the bookstore or something like that. They might, you know, it's just a, a great little book. I would also recommend his, his book, DeSozo. That's another fantastic book. When in doubt, read something or listen to Dave Fiedler. I'm, I'm a big fan. Okay. Anyway, but this comes from that. Now, let's summarize on what we're doing here today. For the purposes today, it should suffice that, number one, the Seventh-day Adventist Church Manual is not inspired. Let's be clear about that. It undergoes regular revisions and is of an entirely different nature than the Bible or the writings of Ellen G. White, both of which are inspired and spiritually authoritative. Okay? So we never do that with Isaiah 58. Like, all in favor, should we keep it? Should we cut it? We don't do that, right? But we do that with a church manual. These are agreed upon policies by human beings. Now, we believe the process that leads to it is led by the Holy Spirit, and we want to be careful with it, right? It does have significance. It does have ecclesiastical authority. But final authority rests in inspired writings, period. Yes? Okay. Number two. The church manual does, however, harmonize with general conference working policies and reflects the best practices current in local church governance. So I think you would be foolish to say it's the new Bible, but I also think you'd be foolish to disregard it altogether. Thus, point number three. The church manual provides sound, practical guidance for local church functions. Its purpose is not to add to or replace the inspired sources of the Bible, the spirit of prophecy, or the leading of the Holy Spirit. Instead, the SDA church manual is simply a helpful aid for church members and pastors in the routine functions of local church life. Does that make sense? So when I go full, I want to have that preamble so that the whole time I'm talking about the church manual, you're not back there stewing like he has drunk the Kool-Aid, he is off the, or you're, you know... It's not like that. But this is a tool that every church recognizes as voted by the whole body. And I don't care if you're in a liberal, conservative, up, down, left, right, whatever. This is something that we have all generally agreed to would be good to practice in our church. So it's a common set of policies. Are we all together? Okay, so let's talk about church structure. The SDA Church Manual, pages 126 and 127 of the 2010 edition, now I'm going to bring in the 2015 edition and demonstrate that there are differences, some of which, I'll be honest, and I know I'm being recorded, I disagree with. However, there's still valuable information there, 
And I don't disagree. Let me say, it's not like, on principle, you've done something wrong and naughty. I just prefer the 2010 better. And I think you'll see why. I'll show you the 2010 version of what I'm talking about, then we'll read the 2015, and maybe you can see what I'm talking about. Okay, anyway. Here's what we read in the 2010 edition of the church manual when it comes to, quote, the work of the board. Okay? It says this, The gospel commission of Jesus makes evangelism, proclaiming the good news of the gospel, the primary function of the church. Amen? That's what we're called to do. It's only logical, the next sentence says, It is therefore also the primary work of the church board, the primary function of the board, which serves as the chief committee of the church. Now let's use a little logic. If the Great Commission is what all of our churches are to be doing, what is the church board's job? is to make sure we're doing our commission, right? But automatically, that's a paradigm shift for a lot of people. I thought the board's job was to make sure we were financially stable, that the building was going, that the... Uh, no. Not primarily. Now, they do have that responsibility, but it's not their foremost job, okay? Let's keep going. When the board devotes its first interests and highest energies to, and I love this, every member evangelism... Not just evangelism, because you could say, all right, we got to hire Doug Batchelor once a year, and that kind of thing. No, 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 no. Every member evangelism is written into the church manual as the work of the board, as its first priority. Most problems are alleviated or prevented, and a strong positive influence is felt in the spiritual life and growth of members. Okay? Now, under that introductory paragraph, which tells you the purpose of the board, it starts breaking it down. It says, number one, The most important item on the agenda should be planning the evangelization of the outreach or missionary territory of the church. You know, when I came into ministry, I didn't go to the seminary, and I still haven't. Um, I guess I'm, I'm ordained and I'm in the office now, so I can say it out loud, but I haven't been to the seminary. Um, but I assumed that everyone who did got all this training and stuff, but I just came with a religious education degree. I was expecting to be a Bible teacher, and, I, and the job came with what I thought was a chapel on the campus. Lo and behold, it's a sisterhood of churches with a board and elders and church business meetings. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So I picked up the church manual, and the, the manual I had was one I was given at a class at Southern. I was like, I've got this thing that tells you how to run stuff, so I better look at it. I have to chair a meeting. I've never, I'd never even attended a church board meeting, and now I had to chair one. I didn't know how to write an agenda. But fortunately, there was some guidance. And apparently, evangelism is number one. All right, we'll put it on there. Man, you know, what does the scripture say? The Lord preserveth the simple. It's great, right? Now, listen to this. This is, after that initial introductory paragraph, then it says, again, the most important on the agenda item should be planning the evangelization of the outreach territory of the church. Then it says, next sentence, in addition, each Once each quarter, an entire meeting should be devoted to plans for evangelism. Now, let's think about that. Now, I'm not going to say think about it logically, because there is no other way to think. <laughs> Thinking is a logical pursuit inherently. But let's think about it together. If you're supposed to have a board meeting, how often is your board supposed to meet? Once a month. But it says once each quarter, an entire meeting should be devoted to one item planning for evangelism. And it already told us what kind of evangelism, every member evangelism. Okay, so what are our options to accomplish those two expectations? You could either have once, you have a regular monthly board meeting that has the standard agenda, and then every third meeting, right, 
Because once each quarter is how many months are in a quarter? Three, right? I mean, because there's 12 months in a year, there's four quarters, you divide it and you get three. <laughs> so you have January, February, March, first quarter. Once each quarter, an entire meeting should be devoted to plans for evangelism. There's only two ways I can see to accomplish that. You either replace one of the three quarterly board meetings with an evangelism board meeting, or what's the other option? You add one. But somewhere in that first quarter, you need an entire board meeting just for plans for evangelism. And you're going to do it again the next quarter, and the next quarter, every quarter. So you should have at least four, throughout the year, board meetings that focus on nothing but plans for evangelism. I'm telling you, there are gems in this church manual that you realize, man, our church isn't anywhere near doing this. And again, you're not getting this some crazy offshoot independent ministry who's trying to reform. This is what we've all agreed on at the general conference session. Just nobody's doing it. That the premise of this whole message today is not that we need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to learn to drive the car the Lord's already given us. Anyway, let's keep going. And it, by the way, it's so fun to get amens from a lecture on the church manual. All right, anyway. <laughs> All right, so again, let's read the, the most important item on the agenda should be the planning of the evangelization of the outreach missionary territory of the church. Sentence number two, in addition, once each quarter, an entire meeting should be devoted to plans for evangelism. The board will study conference recommendations for evangelistic programs and methods and how they can be implemented locally. By the way, what does that presume about your conference? That they have some plans, right? That at the conference level, they're thinking about evangelism and they're thinking about personal ministries, about every member involvement. And so they're going to be rolling out some things for you to say, all right, this is a good idea. How can we do this here? The pastor and the board will initiate and develop plans for public evangelistic campaigns. That was all in item number one. Let's go to item number two. Now we're, we're still under the work of the board, right? Number two. Coordinating outreach programs of departments. Pause right there. What does that suppose about all the departments? That they're all supposed to be doing outreach programs. Okay. So that means whatever department is, so if you're not personal ministries, if you're not Sabbath school, but you're a women's ministry, you're pathfinders, or you're a children's ministry, you're something, that presumes that your job is not only to do programs for them, but you're supposed to use that department to do outreach service for the community. Right? Mission. And notice the work of the board is not to plan all of those programs, it's simply to coordinate them. That the plans would come from the departments themselves. So when you get together on your whatever subcommittee you're a part of, whatever department you, you have responsibility with, that you should be talking about how can we use this angle to further that great commission. And then you bring those plans to the board. Still on item number two. The church board is responsible for coordinating the work of all church departments. Each department develops its plans for outreach within its own sphere. To avoid conflict in timing and competition in securing volunteers and to achieve maximum beneficial results, coordination is essential. So you don't just, you know, every department goes and say, all right, I'm going to this weekend. And you come back to the board and six different departments have chosen the same weekend. Or we're going to use these people, but they're double booked. And, oh, we have this funding, but we don't have it in the, you know, coordination is the work of the board. The planning goes to the departments, but the coordination is at the board. Before completing and announcing plans for any program, each department should submit its plans to the board for approval. 
By the way, in the Michigan Conference, and we'll be talking about this with Emmanuel, and we'll be getting this out to the field, we have departmental planning guides. A simple little one-sheet thing that says, by the way, if you're going to do an event, let's say that you're health ministries, you want to do a health expo, you should write down, you know, when it's going to be, who's going to be involved, how much money is it going to cost, and what do you hope to achieve? Submit that to the board, and they're like, sounds good. All in favor? Aye. Okay. Then, by the way, after it happens, what should you do? Evaluate with your department. Hey, how did it go? We expected 30 to show up and 300 showed up. Amen. Or vice versa. Or maybe we put $5,000 into we only got about a $500 result. A lot of times we do a thing and we never hear of it anymore. We have no idea whether it was a success or failure. We don't even have a rubric of which to stand, you know, standard to judge by. And when it comes around next year, we'll do it again the exact same way. And it might be completely ineffective when a little tweak might really put that thing on the, on the horizon. You know, make it a thing. So again, before completing announcing plans for any program, each department should submit its plans to the board for approval. The departments also report to the board on the progress and results of their outreach programs. So duh, before and after, tell us how it went. The board may suggest how departmental programs can contribute to the pre preparation, conduct, and follow-up of a public evangelistic campaign. So remember, public evangelism is the overall goal of the board. So in departments submit their plans, not only is that a good idea, but hey, maybe we could use this as a tool for evangelists, fold it in together. Yes, ma'am. Uh, the, right now, it was available through, I want to say, trainingcenterchurches.com, but with all the changes that are coming in the conference, I can't confidently say where they are right now, but I can tell you they're going to be available soon through the Emanuel Institute training program stuff. We're just developing it. Like, technically, Mark Howard's not on the job yet. He starts July 1. But we're just dragooning him into the stuff right now because we, we're at camp meeting. And literally, I'm living out of boxes, and I just got my office set up last week. So it's just real, real new. But these things already exist. We're just trying to create the structures to get them out there effectively. So it's coming. That's what I'm saying. You want to have your email in there. Okay. So... Number three, so that was number one. And so number one is planning evangelism. Number two is coordinating all the outreach that all the departments are doing. Item number three of the board, encouraging the personal ministries department to enlist all members and children in some form of personal outreach missionary service. Training classes should be conducted in various lines of outreach ministry. By the way, you notice we haven't talked about money once. No building projects, no carpet color, none of that stuff. Everything is about the mission of the church. And it's going from the broadest sense, the whole church doing evangelism, then to each department doing it. And the third item is how is every individual doing it within those departments? Yes? So some people would have no idea how or what to train church members. But obviously that's a huge portion of the training. Yes. Does the conference have things? I mean, I know you can bring people in, but you can't always bring people in. Yes. So what can like resources? Yes. The responsibility of this department is to put together not only uh, initiatives like, hey, we're going to go out and do an Emanuel Institute in session kind of thing, but also develop resources and communication networks and things that we can make that happen. It's still being built. But it's coming. I can, I can give you that one. It's coming. But I would say that, I mean, already it would start with like the Discipleship Handbook is a good one. It's got some sections on organization and functional structures, but we need to have, I can tell you that in the series, there's planning a leadership guide that would be a handbook for how do I be, how do I, how do I be a leader? Yeah. How do I lead effectively from a lay perspective? That's kind of the goal. There was another hand. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 
There, yeah, there are, are some things that are already there, and like there's also a Sabbath school organizing workbook. There are some little handbooks and pamphlets and things. There are websites. So I'm not trying to take anything away. It's not like we're the first ones discovering this. Clearly, it's already in the general conference, you know, thinking. Uh, and each division is responsible for rolling that out. So I would look at the North American division. Uh, they might have some resources to be helpful. I'm not familiar enough to say I would recommend this particular thing, but... Go to the NAD ministerial website. Go to the General Conference ministerial website, too. They might have some resources that could be helpful already now. But I can tell you that most people aren't aware of that, and so on a conference level, we're trying to make things and put directly in people's hands. Yes, sir? Also, teach, teach services, print up materials. Yes, ma'am? It just gives an air of, of, of class to have classical music going. Yes. We have the training videos. Yeah. Well, for instance, yeah, yeah, and we that's that already exists on Grow Michigan churches, uh, but I can tell you that website's going to be tweaked a little bit too. So I, yeah, it is there. Yeah, and I think the shorter one is GrowMI.co, but I don't know if it's up and running right this minute. But I know that that's where the Grow Michigan cycle of all this stuff was. And if you go and click on there, because right now, grow.adventist.org is going to be the new home for this. And so this is where you're going to get those preparation uh, things and the cultivation. Uh, like, for instance, we had videos on how to, um, how to strike up a conversation, how to get interest, how to that kind of thing. Those exist. Mark and I have done those. But I can tell you um, that in, it's not some pie in the sky thing. At the end of August this year, Mark and I are going to the General Conference to record a series with Hope Channel on those. And our goal is to make five-minute training spotlights so that every week in your Sabbath school program, you could have personal ministries training. And even if you don't do it in person, you can at least play the video. And to make a little half-page insert for, so you can have a little... So you can build your own little training resource and you don't have to prepare anything. You just have to push play and it's ready to go. So... I'm kind of uh, announcing this all tomorrow, but you get the, you know, you're ahead of the curve. You're the, you're the, you're the A students, right? But, but Sabbath school, I believe, should be, because if every church should be a training school, well, we already have a school in every church. It's called Sabbath school. But it's, and a lot of churches this close to dead, right? We need to make Sabbath school alive. And that's the name of the initiative, Sabbath school alive. We're trying to be really right on, straightforward with it, right? And so... One of the things we want to do is put mission right back in the centerpiece of the church. I remember growing up, this is mission spotlight, you know, and you had this idea of missionaries, and I was inspired by the stories overseas. So we need to re be reminding our people every week that we are a global missionary movement and have reports around the world, right? So element number one will be a global mission feature every week. Number two will be a local or conference report, a testimony. So if you have a new person or a Sabbath school department that's doing something, put them up, give them five minutes and tell us what we're doing, report, and all the people will say amen, especially if you have little children involved with it. That'll be helpful. Then a personal ministries training feature for five minutes. Here's how you can do this this week, you know, that kind of thing. And then, then your Sabbath school mission program is over and you've done it in 15 minutes. I would personally like to see all the children involved with that too. So that they can, so we can all be a church family, look at the mission stuff, be sent out for mission, and then go to our Sabbath school classes where the children are going to do an investment project or some outreach thing every, every, and then we have things to report, and it builds on. And then the worship service, by the way, oh, I just don't have time, but we're going to do it anyway. 
Have you noticed that people attend prayer meeting and Sabbath school less and less? But people still pretty much attend church. And it seems to be that, at least in my experience, what happens is we take the things that we're not getting in prayer meeting and Sabbath school and wanting them to be in the church service. So we'll have a long time for prayer and, and different things and, and requests. And if it, Well, we had a whole prayer meeting, but you weren't there. So we want to recreate it in the church service. We also want a special mission feature. We want to have these testimonies. We want to have the, so the church service becomes like 50 items that are all going. And then people are like, why is church going so long? <laughs> because you're trying to get a week's worth of church activities into an hour time slot. And it just doesn't make sense. And then you're like, our pastor preaches too long. <laughs> Come on now. We should change the culture. We should change the mindset that Sabbath starts at 9.30 a.m., the Sabbath service, right? Part of that is the worship service, though the other part is Sabbath school, which includes that mission element. And not one bit of it is preliminary. Sabbath school is not the preliminary optional program before church. Nor is the mission program of the Sabbath school preliminary to the real thing, which is study group. It all is important. So you go to church, and I'm saying 9.30 just to give a common template. Your church can do whatever they want with the timing. But you see what I'm saying? It starts at that time, and it doesn't end until the church is over. Each part is different, and each is important. So that we can at least get back to a richer Sabbath experience. And I would love to, and, and I know I'm the radical one, but I'd love to see more good stuff put into Sabbath school instead of trying to, oh, well, people don't come to prayer meeting, people don't come to, let's put it in the worship service where we know people are going to be. No. Put it back in the Sabbath school, and if they miss Sabbath school, they miss something. I'd love to see that happen. I'd love to see a culture where, like, oh, were you there for the baptisms? Like, no, when did that happen? I was here for church. Oh, we did that in Sabbath school. Like, what? Or did you remember the missionaries were here and they did their whole thing? Oh, yeah, that was in Sabbath school. And you start putting some of the more exciting good stuff, not that anything is bad in the world, but you know what I'm saying? All the special features. That's where the mission that's where we're supposed to get our heartbeat for mission is in the Sabbath school. So we need to bring that back and make Sabbath school alive. All right, I'm done. All right, let's go. We haven't even gotten through the work of the board. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe. I think those are... I think those are parts of the thing. I would argue people stay up just as late during the middle of the week and they still can get up for their job. And also, I don't know that many people are going to Sabbath school like, oh man, they might call on me so I didn't study my lesson. Nobody studies their lesson. And it wouldn't matter even if you did because most Sabbath school classes aren't taught that well. You know what I'm saying? I think we need... Because nobody, it, it, is a, it, it, is a, it is a descending cycle that we have to change our mindset. We have to do a radical renovation of Sabbath school program because these are all valid concerns. But there, I, I, I refuse to believe that there is the one magic thing that if we tweak that, it's all going to get better. It's, it's a systemic, enlarged problem. It's, it's holistic that we need a re- remedy. And we've got to keep moving. Brother, go ahead. Maybe I'm getting ahead of you, so stop me if I am. I will. No, go ahead. All these programs you're describing, I'm an educator. So with all these great programs, is there follow-up? Is there I don't know which great programs you're talking about. Uh, sorry, the, the, the Sabbath school, like training to do personal ministries. Yeah. You know, here's how we're equipping the church members. Yeah. We have something coming in saying it hasn't been followed up on. 
We're going to do our best. First of all, I had to build a network of people because notice that Sabbath school is run almost entirely by lay people. So we, I can communicate with the pastor all day, but half the pastors don't know what happens in Sabbath school. They're not, especially in their multi-church district, and that's not throwing the pastors on the bus. It's just logistics. You can't be at every Sabbath. You can't be at everything. So we need the laity to take this in charge, and then we need a conference department to be able to have to communicate with them. And we're figuring this out. We don't know yet. But there, I agree there needs to be that system of accountability and some sort of structure and maybe evaluation. Um, but I'm not sure exactly. Like, for instance, it's, right now it's just me, me and Mark with 186 churches. We're looking for a structure that makes it, but should we have a district liaison that we can go in and do a district evaluation? So that's only 12 districts. You know, it, Logistics are a thing we're working through. But like I said, we're just getting out of our boxes, but at least we've got the framework coming. Okay, and, I, and that's why I'm going through the church manual, because this is a thing that you already have. And put it into practice, and let's get back to it. All right. So, first work of the board, evangelism. Second work of the board, coordinating uh, outreach programs. Third is encouraging the personal ministries department to enlist all members and children in some form of personal outreach. Four, encouraging the interest coordinator. Now, number three mentioned the personal ministries department, and some of you are like, we don't have that. <laughs> then number four is really going to flip your lid. Encouraging each, uh, I'm sorry, encouraging the interest coordinator. Now, that's not the interesting coordinator. Like, their job is to make things more interesting. That is people who are interested in Bible studies and church attendance and Sabbath school programs. People who are not in the church but want to know more, right? That there is a lay person called an interest coordinator in every church whose job it is to know the level of interest and the follow-up of every person connected with the church who's not yet a member, okay? For instance, we have no problem thinking there should be a treasurer in the church because we got to count that money. But the idea of having anyone to coordinate the work of the interests is like, we treat money so much more nicely than we treat people. If we lost a penny, we'd be on it. we get audited. But we lose people by the hundreds. Don't even notice. We got to fix that, friends. Anyway, again, encouraging the interest coordinator to ensure that every interest is personally and promptly followed up by the pastor. It does not say that. <laughs> it says each encouraging each uh, encouraging the interest coordinator to ensure that every interest is personally and promptly followed up by an assigned layperson. Mm. I'm telling you, the church manual is the most lay-empowering document we have, and we've already voted to do it. Let's just do it. Number six, uh, number five, encouraging each department to report at least quarterly to the board and to members at business meetings or in church and Sabbath meetings. So every department should let everybody else besides just the board members know what's going on. You know, we report back to the board, but good, that's maybe a dozen of us. What about the rest of the church? Well, tell us at Sabbath school, tell us at church service, tell us at a business meeting, you know, let us know what's happening. And finally, number six, receiving regular reports. The board should consider details of church business and receive regular reports of the treasurer on the, on the church's finances. So it's not to say that we shouldn't talk about money at all. Of course we should. We have a fiduciary responsibility to be good stewards. But it's not the first, second, third, fourth, or even fifth thing we should do. goes on to say, the board should study the membership record and inquire into the spiritual standing of all members and provide for visits to sick, discouraged, and backslidden members. Notice there's an equivalent. We should count the money and we should be accountable for the people too. Right? 
Other officers should periodically report. If there's some other miscellaneous things, they should be brought into. Now, I'm sorry, that, that is from the 2010 edition of the church manual called The Work of the Board. That was on page 126, 127 of the 2010 edition. What you download as a PDF is the 2015 edition. That's why I wanted to draw the 2010 first and then show you the 2015 and see why I might have a little a bit of a bone to pick. Anyway, here it is, SDA Church Manual 2015. You'll find this on page 130. That's what you have in your PDFs if you just downloaded it. Okay. The purpose of the church as the body of Christ is to intentionally disciple members so that they continue in an active and fruitful relationship with Christ and his church. Notice apparently the purpose of the church is to take care of its own members. Now, we've got to understand what disciple means. First of all, I have this contention. The disciple is a noun. And disciple is not a verb. You become a disciple through a process called discipline and training. It's, it's, it's a process, right? Anyway... So they continue in an active and fruitful relationship. Of course those are good things. But it goes on to explain what they mean by discipleship. So I'm not wholeheartedly against it. It's just, it's, I think it's muddied the water a little bit. Okay? It goes on to say, discipleship is based on an ongoing, lifelong relationship with Jesus. The believer commits to abiding in Christ, to being trained for fruitful discipleship by sharing Jesus with others, as well as to leading other members to also be faithful disciples. The church, individually and collectively, shares responsibility for ensuring that every church member remains part of the body of Christ. So it, I read this with a sense that it has shifted from outreach focus to an inreach focus. Right? That's what I get in a sense. But I know that's not what they mean, but it, it could sound like that. Let me be clear. Now, the board is responsible for, to, number one, now, if you, interesting, the 2010 edition, when it comes to the work of the board, In 2010, it had uh, six items, and we just read through them. The 2015 has 10 items, and it goes one, two, three, then four through nine, and then 10. The four through nine are the 2010's six, but I added three new ones at the front and one at the end. Does that make sense? So they kept everything we just read. So everything we just read is word for word still in the church manual. So all that information and resources there to help you, okay? But they've added a few other components to contribute to that idea of discipleship is the ultimate goal and not just membership. And I appreciate that sentiment. We don't want to just make members. We want to have fully disciplined, trained, equipped followers of Jesus. I, I, I get that. But it could be read in a little muddied way, and that bugs me. That's all. Anyway, here's the first. Here are the new. Here's the new one, two, three. Okay, number one, the board is responsible to number one ensure that there is an active, ongoing discipleship plan in place, which includes both spiritual nurture and outreach ministries. Okay, so it's in there still. Number one, outreach ministry, and the board is supposed to be. By the way, wouldn't it be great if there was just a little book? 
called the Discipleship Handbook. But discipleship, we were working on this long before discipleship became all of a sudden the new cool buzzword. And I remember when Jim Howard was a delegate at the 2015 General Conference session just from Michigan here, and we just finished the little blue discipleship handbook, and they said, we're focusing now on discipleship. They made these changes. And he went to the mic. He's like, well, I'm happy to announce <laughs> that the Michigan Conference has just developed this handy resource called the Discipleship Handbook, and we would recommend for your consideration. This so is what they do. They, they didn't just take the book. They took the man. They, they stole Jim Howard altogether. Yeah. But praise the Lord, now the Discipleship Handbook well, the main substantive change is it's not just a little TCC on the spine, but it's a big R for Review and Herald. It's a general conference resource available around the world. Well, it's going to be available around, it's starting right here in Michigan. You get the very first copies of the general conference edition of the, of the Discipleship Handbook. So if you want to have, if you want to abide by the church manual, you've got to get a Discipleship okay. Just throwing that out there. All right. There is a little bit of change, and I can walk you through this real quick. One of the main changes is the mentor's guide that was in a, a separate booklet is now an appendix, just for the simplicity of getting out there. And it was reworded just a little bit so as not to be like, all right, mentor, do this, and that'll, you know, it's a little bit more relationally termed, a little bit. Um, also, some of the specifics, there's a lot of North American bias that goes into writing something, you know, and it's like, you have to think, how is this going to go over in Ghana or Brazil? Or something like that. So building a deck as, for an example, an activity that's a good thing to do, but probably not a Sabbath activity. There aren't, not everybody builds a deck around the world. So you have to think of more like good for all time zones type of references. And the, so those kind of tweaks have been made to make it a little. And you, you, no matter how many times you go through it, you'll find like a comma or a wording error or something. So there's little edits like that. But substantially, the content is the same. Okay, But it that is... If, if you're OCD like me, I don't want a blue one and all the other ones are going to be part of a series when I could have the nice new one that's got the red stripe on it, you know, so that the next one that comes out, which by God's grace will be the Bible study handbook teaching people how to give Bible studies well, will come out and it'll have its little color stripe and it'll be part of a series of resources from the personal, Sabbath School and Personal Ministries Department of the General Conference. Now, because uh, Brother Howard's connection here, you know, he's got family in the area and, uh, I've worked with him for a while. We've got a little team going on. Um, there is an interesting collaboration right now between the Michigan Conference and the General Conference when it comes to Sabbath School and Personal Ministries, and we praise the Lord for that. So a lot of the things that are end up going to the world field are going to start right here in Michigan, and so we're pretty excited about that. I'm sorry, was there a hand? At the ABC, for a special discounted rate of $9.99 a book here at Camp Meeting. And we have cases available if you want to take them home. We have literally hundreds of them here, and they're the first hundreds that exist. Like, literally, Elder Howard had not seen it until we opened the packaging here at Camp. They got here right on time. So it's pretty fun. Uh, very quickly, yes, ma'am. That's true. There is a, there's a whole cycle of theft. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it's great for the, it's ideally the one-on-one -on -one mentorship, you know, every week study, but we've used it as Sabbath school classes, we've seen it used as prayer meeting, um, uh, uh, study material, we've had pastors just use it as preaching through it like a series, and that, so, so, by the way, if you're ever in a pinch as a lay pastor and you want something to preach, they're laid out great, like sermon outlines, just preach it, go for it, so we're trying to give you some tools to be helpful, anyway, all right, let's go, um, 
So the new number one is to make sure that there's a discipleship plan in place. And luckily enough, you have one in hand. Great. Number two. Oh, it also says this is the most important item for the board's attention. Tell you, it says that on page 131. And then, yep. Yeah, told you I'm not making stuff up. Number two. Study membership lists and initiate plans for reconnecting or reclaiming members who have separated from the church. Now that, see, that's an amen thing, but that wasn't mentioned in the other one. So that's a good thing to have, and it's more explicitly spelled out here. So that's a good thing. So we want to, but it, notice it starts with the members we have, then it goes to the ones we used to have, and it's kind of a concentric circle working out, working from the inside out instead of from the outside in, which the other one was doing. It's a little bit differently structured. Number three, train local church leadership in how to encourage intentional spiritual growth in themselves and others. In all honesty, I'm not sure what this sentence means. Because it... Train local church leadership in how to encourage intentional spiritual growth in themselves and others. Not sure what that means exactly. But I think what they mean is make sure that everyone's having personal devotions, make sure that they're attending all the function of church, make sure that they're having a rich experience in Christ, you know, as leaders, so that they can convey that to others. I assume that's the intended meaning. But I wish it could be clearer. Anyway, like I said, numbers four through nine are the same. And number ten is only three words long. And you've already got the cheat sheet, so go ahead and tell us what it is. There you go. So there was no mention of that in the first six. So I don't think that anything that's been added is wrong. Those are good things. They've just taken a different approach to it and written it in such a way that it could maybe be misread so that the main purpose of the church is to take care of its own members. And that outreach becomes a secondary thing. And I would hate to see that. I would say that the best way to encourage outreach is to encourage spiritual growth is to get people involved with outreach witnessing, right? That's how we grow. So let's just keep that on the burn. Anyway, fortunately, both recent editions of the manual conclude this work of the board section with the following statement. This is one of my favorites. The board should permit no other business to interfere with planning for evangelism. Should other business be too time-consuming, the board should appoint committees to care for specific areas of church business, such as finance or church-building projects. Such committees will then make recommendations to the board. We should not have it where we talk about finances, the whole board, and, oh, we don't have time to talk about the evangelism. It should completely flipped up. We should fill it up with evangelism. If we don't have time for the money, go make a subcommittee and report back next time. But people should be our primary focus. That make sense? Okay. Now let's talk about that personal ministries department, which was number three and now I guess number six in this one. Um, the personal ministries department. What does that look like? And that's germane to everybody in this class. This is now from the 2015 edition, so I'm making sure you have the current stuff. Quote, this is page 100-101. Personal Ministries provides resources and trains members to unite their efforts with those of the pastor and officers in soul-winning service. It also has the primary responsibility for programs assisting those in need. Which, by the way, is the same thing on the conference level, because not only do we have the Sabbath school and personal ministries responsibilities, but also within that is also prison ministries and in-gathering and those types of things are underneath that umbrella, and which is likely how it will be at your local church too, okay? Um, so how do you run such a th department of the church? Well, you have the very next paragraph, the Personal Ministries Council, which look at who goes on the, on the board here. I mean, it's basically a little miniature board. Honestly, look at it. 
The Personal Ministries Council guides the outreach or missionary efforts of the church and works under the direction of the board. So it's a subcommittee of the board. The council should meet at least once each month. Now let's think about it. If you're the Personal Ministries leader, how many monthly meetings do you now have? Two. And on that third month, you might have three if you add another one, which is why I would propose you don't add another board meeting. You just replace the regular one with one all about evangelism because... Trust me, it's much easier to get people to regularly scheduled thing than coming out to a special thing, right? Anyway, but the person ministry council should meet at least once each month and should consist of the pastor, an elder, the treasurer, leaders of the other departments and auxiliary services functioning in that congregation. So all the departmental leaders, the pastors, the elder, one elder instead of the board of elders, where the board typically has all the elders. This one has a one representative elder. Okay, so that's a little bit different. But you saw the pastor... Um, you don't have, it, you do have the treasure because you're going to spend a lot of money. It's going to be a money thing. You've got to have them on board. And basically you have a little sub-board. It's interesting. The Personal Ministries Council may assign subcommittees for specialized tasks. So you'd have a subcommittee of a subcommittee. Now, I know we, we laugh at a lot of these things, but I'm a big fan of nominating committee. I'm a big fan of subcommittees. I think it works right because we've got to put things, the purpose of the subcommittee is not get the main committee bogged down on stuff it shouldn't be doing. The Personal Ministries Council and leader are responsible for organizing small group ministries. The Personal Ministries leader trains and directs members in outreach or missionary service and chairs the Personal Ministries Council. The leader reports, now listen to this. They just kind of threw this one in here. The leader, that is the Personal Ministries leader, reports in the monthly church outreach Sabbath service. What? What does that assume about your church services? That every month, you're having what they call the outreach or missionary Sabbath. Every month. In the same way you have a board meeting once a quarter, you have once a month, you have a church service entirely devoted to outreach and missionary service. This is a pretty radical document. I thought it was just pretty tame. Uh. This is page 101-101. The leader reports in the monthly church outreach or missionary Sabbath and business meetings about total outreach or missionary activities of the congregation. Assistance may be assigned to coordinate coordinate the Bible Correspondence School. The what? What does that assume every church has? You got got a Bible school going, right? That you're out there giving Bible studies. Handily enough, we have this resource called BibleStudyOffer.com. You know, when the Training Center Church Committee started, and it predates me, it goes back to right out in the field, right? That the pastors got together. There was a call at the 2010 General Conference session for revival and reformation. And everybody loves revival, right? It gets you all hyped up. It's a spirit point. But you need a structure to do something with all that energy, right? And what would the reforming, what would the reformation look like? Well, we don't have to reinvent stuff. It's already, we've already gone through this. But we need the tools to put into practice the things we already agreed to. So BibleStudyOffer.com is not some interesting little couple-year initiative. It's supposed to be the opportunity for every church to be a Bible school. So that when you get Bible study interests, you are the front line where they go. They don't go off and write to discover or write to amazing facts. They go to you. They go to you, or you go to them, right? And you get it, somebody go online and you get a knock on the door. Hi, I'm with BibleStudyOffer.com. Now, we can talk about the logistics of that and the difficulties. It's not about that, okay? Come to our trainings. We're going to talk more about each of these things. But the purpose of these tools is to help us do the things we've already been tasked with doing. So that now, praise God, 
you have a resource right here in hand to make your local church a Bible school for uh, reaching these interests. Okay. I did not put the date on the board yet. I could do that. Thank you. Do you want to look it up real quick or should I? Okay. Well, neither do I. But let's try to remind me of that later. I just want to get to the material and we're, the time is just tyrannical. Um, oh, anyway, assistance may be assigned to coordinate the Bible Correspondence School, Bible Evangelism, Literature Distribution, In-Gathering, Small Group members, Ministries, Member Training, and other soul-winning programs. That's a lot under the Person Ministries Council. And most churches are doing well to have a person doing any personal ministries. And if they have literature evangelism, what they mean is a rack. Right? Like, we, we barely have these things. We want to take them and make them more robust. We don't have to create anything new. We just need to actually do what we've got on books. All right. Let's talk about that Bible school. Well, from page 101, there's this other interesting statement. Bible school coordinator. Apparently, it's the thing we were supposed to have all along. The Bible school coordinator organizes and coordinates the church's Bible school outreach ministry to the community. The coordinator should work closely with the pastor, the interest coordinator, and the personal ministries leader. Okay? So you've got a personal ministries leader, and you've got all those other responsibilities, so they can't take on the Bible school. We need a Bible school coordinator, which here we would have no problem if you're the BibleStudyOffer.com coordinator, because that's your Bible school. Okay. Now... They mentioned again that interest coordinator. This is from page 86 from the SDA Church Manual. All this is 2015, hot off the press edition. The interest coordinator. An interest coordinator should be elected to make sure that interests developed through the church's missionary outreach are cared for promptly. All right, let's think it through. Let's say that you got behind this, man. We want to be an outreach organism. We want to be a training center for Christian workers. And we want to have a lot of mission activity going on. So you, or let's take health ministries, that's a typical one. Let's say that you take the um, health ministries department, and they go to their department, they say, you know what we need? We need to reach the community. Let's have a health expo. We're going to check blood pressures and give them their real health age, and then at the end, we'll give them an, man, would you like some Bible studies? They make that the last card, the trust in God card. We're going to go through New Start, whatever your thing is. Great. And they plan it out, they get all their resources together, they get all the personnel, they get their budget, and they launch this big thing, and it is a success, right? They go to some, like, local hall or a library, do somewhere, you know, or even right there in the church parking lot or something. I don't know. But you do this thing and people come out. Let's say you had a hundred visitors and 10 of them want Bible studies. Praise the Lord. So you've got their little information on a card. Now what do you do with them? <laughs> yeah, most people, exactly. Most people would think that you would carefully tidy them up and bring them before the pastor. <laughs> we brought you another one. Good luck. So that we see that outreach ministry is often an event. We did that thing that day. But notice that what's supposed to happen is that's supposed to go to the interest coordinator. And we already read in the church board, what is the interest coordinator supposed to do with those names? Give them to assigned lay people. Right? This is exactly what it says. This person is a member of the board, the interest coordinator, and the personal ministries council and works directly with the pastor and the chairperson of that council. Duties of this office include, number one, keeping an organized list of all interests received by the church. Well, that seems pretty common sense. We should have a list of all the people who have expressed interest in knowing more about our church. Number two, which Bible study offer, by the way, is a very handy thing. It does it digitally. It's right there on the computer. 
Number two, assisting the pastor and chairperson of the personal ministries council in enlisting and recruiting qualified members for follow-up service. And number three is my personal favorite, presenting to the board a monthly report on the number of interests received and followed up. There's a second sentence there. That's not my favorite part, but I, that makes sense. If we, have a, if we have a financial report every month, why don't we have an interest report every month? This month we had this event. We got three new interests. Two of them are still in the Bible studies. They'd be followed up by this person and this person. It wouldn't take but 30 seconds to do it. But you could be abreast of all the interests that are being coordinated. Typically. But there might be an interest in coming to Sabbath school. There might be an interest in coming to another program. But when we talk about this, this goes a little bit deeper philosophically. But when you become a Seventh-day anybody who becomes a Seventh-day Adventist goes through either a public evangelism series, which is just a big public Bible study, or they go through a set of personal Bible studies. You don't have to go to a health expo to become a Seventh-day Adventist. Not everyone who does has ever, I mean, there's plenty of Seventh-day, have never been to one, right? But there's nobody who joined the church who hasn't studied the Bible. So that is the entrance to baptism, and the baptism is the entrance to the church. You have to understand what you're doing. You have to become prepared as a knowledgeable follower of Jesus through a study of his word. And so, yes, to become a Seventh-day Adventist, I mean, that's when you, uh, when you stand up and get baptized, you know, you read through the 13 statements, you know, and it says, do you understand and agree to the, seven, the beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist church that are taught in the Bible? And it talks about biblical lifestyle. I mean, there's a lot of things that go on. So, um, absolutely. Any interest we view as a potential church member, and in order for that to happen, they need to understand and apply the teachings of the Bible. So, yeah. In a nutshell, yes. Now, here's my favorite sentence of this. When an interest is sufficiently developed through Bible study, it should be shared with the pastor. Wouldn't that be a trippy thing for the pastor to come to church? And like, oh, by the way, pastor, uh, this is the person, you might not have met them before, but they were at the health expo, and I've been following up with Bible studies with them, and they've just completed the course, and I think they're about ready for baptism. I'd like to introduce you to them. Sure. And then if you had a multi-church district, if every lay church membership was doing this kind of work, and the pastor, anybody ever been to some of the churches in South America and Africa and some of these places where they have like 15, 20, 30 churches per pastor or more? The pastor is, for all intents and duties, a little conference president. They're administrating and encouraging and putting out resources so they can do the work, and they travel around, and every few months you see them. But every time they go to church, they're doing baptisms. <laughs> every time. They just take that change of clothes with them because they know they're going to be baptizing people every single Sabbath. Every time they go. Because the lay people are doing this stuff. And they're not being fanatical. They're not being extremists. They're just being faithful to the Word of God, the Spirit of Prophecy, and the agreed-upon policies of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's that simple. Anywho, now let's talk about that outreach service. We only have 10 minutes left. Uh, this is page 122. The first Sabbath of each month is the Church Outreach Missionary Sabbath. This worship service focuses on lay evangelism and may feature plans and activities of various departments. It just says that. It just says that it is. And we're all like, yep, yep, yep. Okay. Uh, let's see. From, this is from page 182. In order to strengthen and develop the outreach missionary spirit among our members, auxiliary personal ministries meetings might be conducted in one or more of the following ways. A, 
the 10-minute weekly personal ministries meeting held each Sabbath. It doesn't say you might have this as an option. You know, you could do it in the one that you're already doing, right? Usually following the close of the Sabbath school and preceding the preaching service. So it presumes that every week you have a 10-minute weekly personal ministries meeting. And that doesn't mean a private meeting of personal ministries leader. It means a public meeting of reports of what's going on. So once a month, the whole church service will be focused on that. And every Sabbath, a section is supposed to be focused on that. The only difference what we're talking about, and uh, we talked about that Sabbath school thing, is what they're saying is to do it after Sabbath school, before church. And I don't know if they mean to do like missionary program, then class, then another personal ministries thing. And then, I mean, I don't know, that might be a little too radical for what we're ready for, right? But at least we should have every Sabbath have some component of missionary outreach service be at the forefront of what we do, okay? B, a midweek meeting combined with the weekly prayer meeting. On this occasion, the first part of the service may be given to a devotional message followed by a season of prayer, remembering that worship is vital in spiritual growth and preparation for service. The remainder of the time may be devoted to training for lay evangelistic service. Instruction soul-winning methods is presented, and the members are given opportunity to present and discuss problems they have met in lay evangelism. So basically, you know, since you're all coming to prayer meeting anyway, right? That you could follow it up with a little get-together about how is our evangelism outreach going? What are some strengths and weaknesses? What, are, what encouragements or discouragements? How can we give some helpful hints and pointers and a little training there? Cool. Now, I know that it comes across, and I want to be clear about this, that I'm dogging member care, that I don't think that once you get in the church, you should have any pastoral oversight. Like the pastor never talks to the members. He's just off doing working with new members. And, and the church board is supposed to be focused on new members. And the lament comes up, and rightfully so, well, what about the care for our own people? How is that supposed to happen in a training center church? If we were to actually go by the church manual and the, and the resources we've agreed upon, how is member care taken if we're so focused? And I think that question was the motive for the rewording of the working of the board. They want to make sure that that's not overlooked. And that's a legitimate concern. I'm with that. Now, let me read to you about how member care should be done in the local church according to, again, the church manual and also the pastors and elders handbooks and these kind of things. This is what I found. You'll find this on pages 73 and 74 of the church manual. And I love this opening line. If the conference committee assigns a pastor or pastors to the congregation, it doesn't say when, it says if you happen to have a pastor. If the conference committee assigns a pastor or pastor to the congregation, the pastor or senior pastor, if more than one, should be considered the ranking officer and the local elders as assistants. Which the implication is, if you don't have a pastor, the board of elders is supposed to be the leader. Right? But anyway, they should work together. Since their work is closely related, they should work together harmoniously. The pastor should not assume all lines of responsibility, but should share these with the elders and other officers. The pastoral work of the church, and by that they don't mean like ordained pastor, they mean like shepherding, pastoral, like a pasture. Right? Pastoral work of the church should be shared by the pastor and the elders. There are some times you need to do counseling and you need to talk about difficult situations, you need a one-on-one conversation that might be, you know, you got to do that. But again, it should be taken care of. It says should be shared by the pastor and the elders. So the pastor is not distant and removed from it, but it should be a cooperative between the pastor primarily and the elders as assistants. Okay? In counsel with the pastor, the elders should visit members, minister to the sick, foster prayer ministries, arrange or lead out in anointing services and child dedications. 
encourage the disheartened, and assist in other pastoral responsibilities. Isn't that interesting? Baby dedications are given to the elders. It's right there in the manual. But we've, because I believe of this climate of pastor dependency, have created this big separating wall between the lay elders and the real pastor, so that now you can have someone in the hospital and they can get visited by three elders and two deacons and a band of deaconesses bringing them cookies or my mate shouldn't cookies, uh, a salad or whatever, uh, if they're not healthy. Yeah, if they're in the hospital, it's like, here, you help your diabetes, here's some sugar. But, um, but you understand what I'm saying. But at the end of it, they can say, where was the pastor? I didn't get visited. And they're like, it didn't count. Those prayers didn't, you know, weren't as effective as they could have been because we, what we've done is we put the pastor in the place of where the priest used to be. That it's from him that we get our salvation, from him that we get the restoration. Him. Now, it's good for the pastor to go. I'm not against pastoral visiting. I think it's important. You should get to know your members and have a relationship. I get that. But the pastor is not the conference hiring you a buddy. His job is to train and equip and get everyone in work for the Lord, which part of that is member care, for sure, and part of that is outreach, but we gotta have a balance, but the local leadership of the laity is supposed to be involved in every aspect of this. The pastor's supposed to help coordinate it, inspire them, and lead by example, for sure. But I've seen plenty of pastors like, oh, I can't do that today, I've got nine visits to do this, and I've got this, and every, so they're doing all the Bible studies, they're doing all the hospital visits, they're doing all the baby dedications, they're doing all this kind of stuff, and they're like, well, when are we gonna get evangelism around here, pastor? Oh yeah, I gotta do this. And we start expecting everything. And our job is to pray for and financially support his work. And we develop a congregation that's got 100 people watching one man work. Instead of that one man's job primarily being get all of us to do this work well. Does that make sense? So I'm not downplaying visitation. I think it's important. We just need to have the right mindset and structure to do it effectively. Okay? So let's keep going. Um, let's see here. As under-shepherds, elders should exercise constant vigilance over the flock. And that's why you typically would, if, if you're going to have a church structured like this, you'd want to have what they call the parish plan, where uh, uh, the elders have a certain segment of the congregation, maybe you know, 10, 20 people or something like that, that they're particularly watching out for, and they keep up with. It'd be nice if they sent them little birthday cards. or had. To, but they're, by the way, they're the ones who are going to have the longer-term relationship. Pastors are usually only there for a handful of years in the single digits, Right? The long-term relationship is between the members who live there. They might have a dental practice. They're probably not picking up anytime soon. The pastors live in parsonages half the time. We don't even, you know, it's just different. But that long-term investment of the community is right there within the local church membership, right? Anyway, let's keep going. Because the pastor is appointed to the position in the church by the conference, the pastor serves the church as a conference employee, is responsible to the conference committee, and maintains a sympathetic and cooperative relation to and works in harmony with all the plans and policies of the local church. But the manual makes it clear, the pastor is not the local church employee. He's hired by the conference and just happens to work at your location for the time being. Does that make sense? Okay. Which... I agree with the Great Advent Movement. It's good to circulate that because some people have different strengths. Some pastors are fantastic connectors and they make networks and they have great, maybe they're great fundraising or, or a building campaign might be their strength. Or some might be a great public evangelist. They may be a great speaker. They might have great with children. They might have different strengths and it's good to kind of mix that around. But you can't expect him to be all things to all people. It's not reasonable. Anyway, uh, let's see here. 
Elders who are elected by the church are responsible to that body and to its board. Okay? Now, this is from the Elder's Handbook, 2013. This is the most recent edition at the time. I'm pretty sure the new one has come out, but I'm guessing it keeps the exact same language. Planning for home visitation should be a regular part of the elders meeting. Visitation could be assigned to leading church members gifted and trained in that particular ministry. Such programs are also called a parish or under-shepherd plan, where membership is usually divided into geographic zones. An elder, assisted by a deacon or deaconess, could be in charge of a parish or a zone. So notice we've got elders. So we've got the pastor cooperating with elders, the elders with the deacons and deaconesses, and they're supposed to get lay people involved too. The, the goal is not to see how much we can get the pastor to go do, or the head elder to do, or the associate elder. The goal is to make sure that all the things are done regardless of who does them, Right? So it's not like when you get greeted on Sabbath morning by the greeter, people are like, well, it wasn't really a good greeting. It wasn't like a pastoral greeting. But why do we organize them? It's because we want someone to be there to make sure they get a handshake and a happy Sabbath and a, and a, and a bulletin and a guidance to where should I go and sit and have you signed the visitor book or have you heard about our Bible school? That's why we have them. And by the way, having an organized structure for, say, things like greeter isn't a sign that we don't care about you. It's the sign that we do care. You would never go to like, oh, you're just giving me that bulletin because it's your job this week. <laughs> well, I mean, it is my job this week, but it's my job this week because I care enough to take that responsibility and be on the list, right? Don't be like, oh, you're just coming because I'm part of your parish. Well, yes, but the point of having this parish division is so that we can care for you. It's not the antithesis, it's exactly the opposite of what they're thinking, right? Anyway, an elder, uh, uh, the pastor and elders lead out in the visitation plan and other programs that build spiritual strength in church. All right, we're going to make this on... Oh, I haven't done this quite yet, but can we, can we go another five or ten? Is that all right? Uh, I don't know if I... No, I can't. Ha! I'm platform chair <laughs> in just a moment here, uh, but... Uh, here we go. Uh, let's just finish this out and they'll deal with it. In many churches, visitation is arranged by distributing membership by districts and assigning a deacon to each district with the expectation that he will visit each home at least once a quarter. That's the deacon. I thought they just unload, uh, you know, unloaded tables and chairs and un- unlocked doors. No. If church elects several deaconesses, it should organize a board of deaconesses chaired by the head deaconess and another deaconess serving as secretary. This board is authorized to assign duties to individual deaconesses and cooperates closely with the board of deacons, especially in welcoming members and visitors and in home visitation. So we got elders and pastors and deacons and deaconesses and other members. We're supposed to have a coordinated effort where we're all visiting each other and taking care of each other. Like the early church. When they saw a need, they went and took care of it. I'm saying, let me, let me lead you with this. I don't even have time to agree with you right now. Inspired counsel. Christian service, page 68 and 69. Preaching is a small part of the work to be done for the salvation of souls. God's Spirit convicts sinners of the truth, and He places them in the arms of the church. The ministers may do their part, but they can never perform the work that the church should do. Next one. Ministers may preach pleasing and forcible discourses, and much labor be put forth to build up and make the church prosperous. But unless its individual members shall act their part as servants of Jesus Christ, the church will ever be in darkness and without strength. How about this one? The minister should not feel that it is his duty to all the talking and all the laboring and all the praying. He should educate helpers in every church. Let different ones take turns in leading the meetings and in giving Bible readings. In so doing, they will be calling into use the talents which God has given them and at the same time be receiving a training as workers. And finally, the best help that ministers can give members of our churches is not sermonizing, but planning work for them. Give each one something to do for others. Help all to see that as receivers of the grace of Christ, they are, and somehow my notes cut off, but I'm just going to say responsible to go win souls. (laughs) Have we been clear today? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.
Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that in your infinite wisdom, you have called each one of us to labor for you, but to do so connected with your body on the earth, which is the church. Help us, Lord, to be good local leaders. Help us, whether we have a position or a title or recognition or not, to be about our Father's business. Teach us how to put into practice these great principles, these biblical truths, and these policies that we agreed on. Lord, we want to do your work. We want to do it well. So bless us to that end, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.